From its very beginnings, the relationship between the English language and the Black Atlantic writer has been fraught with tension. Mikhail Bakhtin once wrote of language that it, quote, lies on the borderline between oneself and the other, end quote. For Bakhtin, the word is half someone else's. It, quote, does not exist in a neutral and impersonal language, but rather it exists in other people's mouths, in other people's contexts, serving other people's intentions, end quote. The need identified here, a need to take ownership of one's words, is especially pertinent to black writers writing in English. The words that they are using exist not only in the mouths of other people, but in the mouth of a white Eurocentric culture with its own set of contexts and constructions. At the same time, the patriarchal imperial centre has physically and psychologically imposed the English language upon black Atlantic writers throughout their history, most notably through the slave trade. Henry Louis Gates Jr. writes, quote, that current language use signifies the difference between cultures and their possession of power, spelling out the distance between subordinate and superordinate in terms of their race, end quote. And it is through this language of difference that the white patriarchal structure exercises its power most strongly. This observation raises the question of whether the white framework of language that black Atlantic writers have had to adopt for their ideas to have currency in a white-dominated society has compromised the sense of black identity within it, or whether there is space for subversion and manipulation of this framework. In order to answer this question, I will be exploring the power struggle between language and voice in Ulaudeh Keanu's The Interesting Narrative and Andrea Levy's The Long Song. Before that, however, I will first elaborate further upon the power that the English language has historically held over black voice. Contrary to popular belief, most slaves were not captured directly by Europeans. Instead, the slave trade system was so institutionalized that many European slave traders had very little involvement in the actual process of enslavement. Slaves were often sold to European traders by African merchants who were not selling their own people, but people they regarded as aliens. These people were obtained from a variety of African countries and had often previously been free. Slaves were usually captured individually and thus separated from the, their, their communities from the moment they became captive. Once they had been sold to European slave traders, men and women were separated and confined to different sides of the slave ship. Separated in this way from their families, their communities and even members of the opposite sex, slaves on the slave ships were often prevented from communicating with each other because they lacked a mutual language. The Atlantic slave trade generated an overwhelming sense of deracination in the slaves that it transported. The use of native languages was often forbidden by masters and slave traders, and even when it wasn't, the system itself prevented slaves from having the ability to communicate with each other in their native tongues. As a result, once the slaves had been sold, because English was the language used by their masters, the English language became the language that they had in common and was effectively forced upon them. African languages were physically suppressed by the colonial act of the slave trade, but they were also suppressed sociologically. In Black Skin's White Masks, Franz Fanon writes that, quote, black men want to prove to white men at all costs the richness of their thought, the equal value of their intellect, end quote. With this thought in mind, it is important to remember that from the 18th century onwards in Europe, the philosophy of the Enlightenment placed reason above all other human characteristics. The ability to reason became an indicator of humanity. Eloquent use of language, particularly in writing, was taken by Europeans to be a visible sign of reason. Thus, the only adequate proof of rational thought became the ability to express oneself elegantly in a language recognised by Europeans. Consequently, in order to prove their equal intellect, black people were compelled to express themselves within this white European framework. 
In the case of the African slave trade, dominated by Britain and America, black slaves were forced both literally and culturally to interact in English, and because of their need to engage a white audience, they were also forced to express themselves through a white English language understanding of the world. Thus, by writing in the English language, and the, language, the social language as it implies, these black writers found themselves employing a language based on binary constructions that categorised them as peripheral to society. When Ulaude Echiano published The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Ulaude Echiano or Gustavus Vassa the African, written by himself, he was not publishing a simple autobiography. He was also demonstrating his ability to occupy the same intellectual space as any white European. Here the words written by himself take on a particular significance. These words were often found on the title pages of 18th century books, but only usually appeared in works by authors whose backgrounds were thought likely to make readers doubt their authenticity. By adding written by himself to his title, Echiano is breaking out of the white conception of the stupid black man, but he is also acknowledging the suspicion with which his white readers view him. At the same time, however, Echiano also makes the controversial decision not to include any authenticating documentation by white authorities in the preface to his work, even though it was common practice for writers of the time to do so. In making this decision, Echiano stands apart from other black writers of his time. He gives his audience no alternative than to take him as his word, thus challenging their preconceptions of him. In this way, it is clear from the very first page that Echiano's interesting narrative is conscious of the way in which it will be seen by readers and of the way in which it presents itself. In Echiano's narrative, his grasp of English is ambiguously beneficial. Although his ability to converse in English grants him currency within European society, the fact that he can speak English is also deemed threatening because it gives him the ability to challenge his masters on their own intellectual level. As a consequence of his acquisition of English, and as he begins to understand white society more fully, Echiano acquires the tools with which to actively challenge his status as a slave. And as Echiano contests the status for the first time, his master, suspecting that he would otherwise attempt to reclaim his freedom, holds him captive. <coughs> Echiano's argument, quote, I told him I was free and he could not by law serve me so, end quote, confirms his master's suspicions and he resolves to sell him on. This passage demonstrates that despite Echiano's mastery of language, he's still powerless at the mercy of his white masters. Because Echiano is able to un argue the unfairness of his position as a slave on the same intellectual level as his master, his master complains that he has too much English for a slave and seeks to silence him by other means. So despite his linguistic skills, Echiano's intellectual legitimacy is still rejected by his master, who simply chooses to ignore Echiano's arguments. The ability to speak English cannot by itself grant Echiano his freedom. As the interesting narrative progresses, Echiano realises that he will not be able to achieve freedom solely through logical argument. He is too much at the mercy of the white men around him. In the text, he demonstrates this vulnerability, documenting examples where he's seen white people take advantage of black people's subhuman status in society in order to cheat them out of what little property they have. This is a behaviour that Echiano finds to be consistent throughout the structure of slavery and especially prevalent on slave plantations. In the text, plantation owners are portrayed as being morally corrupt, often refusing to pay slaves any allowance while at the same time keeping them perpetually underfed. Echiano draws particular attention to the fact that he has, quote, heard it asserted that a Negro cannot earn his master the first cost, end quote a hypothesis that he refutes using factual evidence, but that causes him to ask the question, quote, if it be true, why do the planters and merchants pay such a price for slaves, end quote. <coughs> 
Here, Echiano is exposing the fact that the slaves are trapped within the master-slave power relation that is based in economics. The masters pay their slaves poorly or deny them pay, forcing the slaves to be reliant upon them as they are thus unable to buy their freedom. This is done under the guise of generosity as the masters claim that the providing for the slaves is more expensive than the slaves themselves are worth, an attitude which perpetuates the idea of black slaves as subordinate. Echiano points out the hypocrisy of this attitude. It is these people who mistreat their slaves and complain about the money that they cost who are the most vehement protesters of abolition. In order to escape the master-slave binary structure, Echiano resorts to the tactic of relabeling in his condemnation of the mistreatment of slaves on pl the plantations. He labels himself a Christian and argues against the cruel practices of slavery from a very Christian point of view. The slave trade is thus portrayed as having an unchristian and morally corrupting influence over all those involved in it. The fact that Echiano here has chosen to present his abolitionist argument from a religious viewpoint demonstrates the extent to which Echiano has appropriated the white 18th century language of philosophy and morality. He is conscious of the fact that by labelling slave trade practices as unchristian, his criticism will hold more weight in the mind of his white readership. For Echiano, people also need to be redefined in order to escape the master-slave binary. The simple status of freedom is not secure enough of position to fully protect a black person within the culture of the slave trade. Echiano therefore relies upon his involvement with trade in order to escape the powerlessness implied by his slave status. The label of trader that he assigns himself procures him far more authority than the label of slave ever could. In buying his manumission, Echiano has achieved his goal, a fact that he proudly points out to his readers. He has been made master of himself. The further Echiano places himself from slavery, the more authority he gains within white society. But this has problematic consequences. In order to be respected by the society around him, he has redefined himself as a trader, a master. Echiano has not escaped the master-slave binary. He has simply repositioned himself on the other side of it. And although the ideas expressed within the interesting narrative are staunchly against the practice of the slave trade, Echiano finds himself in a compromising position. It is telling that in the conclusion to his narrative, Echiano condemns the slave trade because, among other things, it is detrimental to the civilization of Africa. His final argument has been tailored to fit 18th century white imperialist agendas. In reading Echiano, it is important not to lose sight of the fact that he was writing for an 18th century white readership. For the book to have any impact on the practice of slavery, it needed to be popular. Echiano as a writer is very conscious of the fact that the abolition is dependent upon white society. In order to convince his readers, he must argue on white terms in their own social language. The fact that he is writing for a particular readership has the effect of diluting his argument somewhat. But although the interesting narrative argues for abolition very much on white terms, the way in which he is, the text itself is written shows that Echiano is very calculating the way that he is presenting himself. The incidents that he relates are manipulated in order to speak against abolition and the cruel treatment of black slaves. This manipulation is most evident in the passage that describes Asaka, Echiano's supposed African homeland. Because Echiano's baptismal records suggest that he was born into slavery in South Carolina, we can read his portrayal of Asaka as a deliberate move to engage with abolitionist accounts that emphasize the idyllic civility and beauty of Africa. The fact that the Igbo people resemble Rousseau's Noble Sauvage so closely suggests that Echiano is manipulating European preconceptions of Africa in order to suit his own agenda. 
In doing this, he is able to manipulate the way in which his white readers think, enabling him to subtly play out his black agenda of abolition. In The Black Atlantic, Paul Gilroy writes of a crisis of modernity in Western society where modern technological advances have caused us to reevaluate the Enlightenment ideals upon which our intellectual status quo has been founded. This upheaval of ideas has caused the periodization of the Enlightenment era, which allows the defining ideas of the Enlightenment era to be viewed from a detached perspective by the modern reader. In consequence, a space has opened up in which marginalized writers are given the opportunity, quote, to argue for the inversion of the relationship between margin and centre as it has appeared within the master discourse of the master race, end quote. Gilroy argues that black writers should make use of this recent upheaval as a chance to write a black voice back into history. Andrea Levy's The Long Song, a first-person narrative about plantation life in abolition-era Jamaica, harks back to the literary tradition of the slave narrative and does exactly this. Levy has explained in her research for the novel, um, she took on the task of piecing together a largely unrecorded domestic history by reading between the lines of the many white accounts of slaves in Jamaican society. Because she is looking at these narratives from a modern day black perspective, Levy finds herself in the privileged position of being able to see through these white 18th and 19th century narrator's preconceptions. Thus, as she explains in the writing of the long song, she interprets the incidents related by white writers of the time, seen to demonstrate the childlike and stupid natures of black people as deliberate acts of subversion. Throughout the long song, the reader is regularly reminded that July's narrative is subjective. She breaks the narrative in order to comment upon her son's reactions to her story and occasionally complains about his attempts to censor her. Better educated in the sensibilities of white society, July's son, Tom, Thomas Kinsman, has a better understanding of what is acceptable to 19th century white readers. The most striking interruption occurs when July describes the event of her birth. Here, July presents us with several dramatized versions of the event of her delivery into the world. In each of these, she is born in extreme weather conditions, while her mother, unperturbed, is working on the plantation. This stereotyped account of her birth can be read as a reference to the way in which, in slave narratives, facts were often exaggerated by the writer in order to obtain as much sympathy as possible from readers. July ultimately rejects this tactic and continues her account with a more truthful description of her birth. By rejecting this trope of the slave narrative, Levy is reinforcing the way in the, which her novel is a reconstructive intellectual labour which attempts to represent individual black voices that are more authentic in some measure than that permitted in the literary genre of the slave narrative. In this genre, because so few slaves um, were able to read and write, there was a consciousness that the narrator was shaping a black voice which represented the concerns of many. Thus, the voice of the narrator as an individual was often quashed. As a 21st century writer, Levy is no longer restricted to the conventions of the past. The postmodern upheaval of the Western worldview has allowed her to write in a social language that breaks free from Enlightenment social structures. Levy's literal use of language is also important. In the long song, the black characters mostly speak Jamaican Creole, <clears throat> while the white plantation owners speak standard British English. In the context of the slave trade, quote, even if they could speak four or five African languages, end quote, black people's imperfect grasp of so-called proper English, quote, confirmed their inferiority in the eyes of the colonizer, end quote. But although the slaves on the plantation speak Creole, this does not mean that they do not understand proper English. They are rebelling by, they are rebelling by willfully misinterpreting commands. 
Here, language acts as a barrier, creating a sense of social difference between the masters who speak proper English and the black slaves who speak Creole. The slaves are therefore committing a subversive act by refusing to cooperate when given orders in proper English. They are breaking down the social barriers put in place by language. The slaves' feigned incomprehension of British English and refusal to obey their masters is a double-edged rebellion. Acting in this way reinforces the white construction of the childlike and stupid slave. At the same time, Levy demonstrates a lack of alternative. Because the choices between representing themselves as willing slaves or having their mis rebellion misinterpreted as stupidity, it makes sense to reject the arbitrary authority that white people are claiming over them in any way that they can. There is a sense of performance here. The slaves on the plantation are conscious that they are living up to the white expectation of them as inferior beings, but they also realise that conforming to these expectations allows them to manipulate white configurations of social structure. They use the labels of childish and stupid that have been assigned to them in order to excuse their acts of disobedience and escape punishment. They are thus able to rebel against the power structure that dictates their lives by appropriating the role assigned to them by white society and manipulating it from within. The social structure of the plantation made it impossible for slaves to directly challenge their status within the master-slave binary. Away from the plantation, however, July's son Thomas, brought up by an English preacher as a free man, is able to transcend social expectations by receiving an education. Because his intelligence is legitimated by white society, Thomas is the black figure who speaks most effectively within the colonial context of the 19th century. Like Akiano, he's able to engage with white society on its own intellectual level. Despite this, it's the character of July, a slave born on the plantation, who appeals to us as modern readers. As a society that has rejected the slave trade, we are now more preoccupied by the authenticity of black voice than by its legitimacy within society. July is quite obviously fictional, but as 21st century readers, we find her voice to be more authentic than that of her sons, which has been civilised by the imperial education system. I'm going to skip towards the conclusion, because I think I'm going to run over otherwise. As society has changed, so have the thoughts and ideals which dictate it. In consequence, the issues that black writers tackle have also evolved. For Akiano, his text is successful if it inspires his white readership to consider black people as human. It was not certain at the time of his writing whether abolition could be considered a realistic goal. Writing in the 21st century, Andrea Levy is no longer concerned with these issues, and in The Long Song, she attempts to write a black voice unrestrained by white expectations back into history. As a rare example of a literate black man, Echiano is conscious of the fact that he is representing the voice of many. Thus, Echiano, the subject of the interesting narrative, is very different to Echiano, the author. In writing Echiano, the subject, as a na narrative persona of innocence that learns from the things that happened to him, Echiano, the author, defamiliarizes his readership with situations that they would otherwise not have questioned. He manipulates his text in order to portray a damning view of the slave trade and present an appealing argument against it for his white readers. The idea that black people are consciously performing their identities is important in both Echiano and Levy's works. In both this performative representation of self, this double consciousness, allows black people in the text to subvert the social structure enforced by empire and escape the social languages associated with it. In order to write black voice back into the history of slavery, Levy presents a fictional narrative that is no nevertheless very much an individual voice. She is combating the remaining influence of empire over modern day mentalities, and for her, the use of language is also a big part of this. 
Although Andrea Levy has chosen to write dialogue in Creole, the narrative written by July is written in standard English. This highlights the way in which Jamaican Creole is sti still seen as a language of the margins. Through Thomas's editorial notes, Levy explains that Jamaican Creole is deemed to be too alienating for a white late Victorian readership, causing us as modern readers to reconsider our own attitudes to Creole. The idea of standard English helped cement the categorization of black people as inferior, childlike, and ultimately as slaves. And even today, the linguistic binary structures that perpetuated these modes of thought continue to exist, albeit more discreetly. Therefore, although the slave trade has been abolished, and although much has been done to break down the binary power structures put in place by empire, language is still a relevant concern, especially for black writers. We are not yet wholly free from those ancient shackles of language. <laughs>